Good morning. Well, thank you for having me back once again. It looks like there are some similar people from last time, so apparently you decided to still come even though I was coming. But it's so nice to be here with you. We had a great day of fellowship yesterday at Presbytery, uh, and then to get to uh, actually come and open the word to you today is quite an honor. This summer, over at Church Creek, um, we have been doing a what we call a family Sunday school. Uh, it's not necessarily just for families, but uh, we do a combined time together uh, with uh, all the adults and all the children all together, and we, uh, we focus on singing children's songs, and we, we make sure all the adults are singing the children's songs and doing the hand gestures and the clapping and the whole thing. It's very exciting. Um, then we have the, the small children go off um, and work on catechism. Well, this summer, because of certain scheduling opportunities, I am doing catechism with the little children. Um, after they got over the fear of seeing my face the first few weeks, uh, it has become a lot of fun. And one of the things that we've been working through in the catechism is from the, the little children's catechism is the section on sin. Uh, and recently we read through um, where sin finds its origin from Genesis 3. And so when I was asked to come and open the word today, this is what I've been thinking through. So I want us to take a few moments this morning and reflect on something that I will, will imagine is something that all of us knows pretty well. Um, if if the, the account of Adam and Eve is new, uh, then I apologize because I'm not going to get into the details. Um, and I'm not going to try to cover everything. I just want us to focus on a couple of big points that I think sometimes we forget. Uh, and in our forgetting, it leads us to, uh, to live in ways that rob us from the powerful presence of God. And that's what we want, right? The Christian faith is not just let's all agree on some ideas. We, be we believe God is real. And we believe that God is present in his creation. And we believe that God is present in our lives through his spirit. And so we want to live lives that don't just have the right ideas in place about God, but lives that are, are drinking deeply from that powerful presence of God. So I'm going to read this morning from Genesis 3, and then I'm going to read one phrase from Romans chapter 5. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now one phrase from Romans chapter 5. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your creation and in a special way through your word. And so as these are your words given to us, preserved for us, to reveal yourself to us, Lord, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would give us hearts that long to meet with you in this way, and that you would fill us so full with yourself that we would not be able but to burst forth from this fellowship together to go back out into the world to be channels of your blessings and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You probably do not remember, but the last time I was here with you, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2. And we looked at that uh, because at the time as I was working on my own things in other places, I had been struck by Jesus's first words that we have recorded for us where he is talking to his first disciples in the Gospel of John. And Jesus's first words to his, to his first disciples is something super spiritual. What do you want? I pointed out in the ESV and in many of the, many of the English translations, they tend to translate it, what are you seeking, right? Because that sounds like something you would hear from a religious leader. What are you seeking, right? But in the Greek, it's really just simply, what do you want? It's a question of desire. It's a question that cuts to the very basics of what it means to pursue Jesus Christ and that we pursue him because we want something from him. Sometimes that's hard for us to remember, as special as Presbyterians, one, that we're allowed to want things, but also that we're supposed to actually want something from Jesus. And yet the writer of Hebrews reminds us of what faith truly is. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, but even more than that, you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. God is in the business of making promises to his people, to reward his people, to give himself as the exceeding great reward to his people. And so at the heart of discipleship, at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is that we want something, we desire something, and we want something from him. And what we saw last time from Genesis 1 and 2 is God created the world from this very perspective, that in the way that he went about creating, he created in such a way that he made things beautiful. He made things delightful. He made things that were to attract people to him. He didn't just give them the the mere basics of what they needed. He didn't just provide them the most basic of food. He didn't just provide them a place to live. But when you read Genesis 1 and 2, he is giving them everything. He gives them this garden paradise that has rivers and jewels and beauty. It is surrounded as as a place that reflects who God is. And as he makes Adam and Eve and as he places them in this garden, he creates them in such a way that they are in his image. And in his image, they have that ability to interact with God and to fellowship with God. And not simply when he shows up to the garden. But we talked about that there is this hidden presence of God in the very creation that he has made. That the material existence of the world 
was made so that as we interact with that material reality that we go through that into the spiritual, into the heavenly, into the eternal. That there is this lowercase s sacramental presence of God in creation. And we move through the material. We move through what is concrete and tangible into the eternal, into the spiritual, into the transcendent. That there isn't this big gap between God and his creation. God wants to be desired. He created his world. And he created us in such a way that we have desires and that those desires would find satisfaction in what he made and through what he made find ultimate satisfaction in him. This is the way he made things. This is the way he made us. Now having heard that, let's look back again at what is happening here in Genesis 3 when Eve is confronted by the second voice that we are ever to hear here in creation. As the serpent comes in, challenges what God has said, as he speaks to Eve and, uh, and puts before her the temptation of eating from the fruit of the tree, notice how Eve responds. Now something that gets focused on here quite a bit is that she doesn't quite get the words of God right or precise when she responds. And sometimes that's used to make a really, a really big deal and a really big point. What I just want to simply say there is, there is always going to be the temptation to separate God from his word. But the bigger point here that I want us to look at today is notice what it says about Eve. When the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food. Stop right there. Was the tree good for food? Yeah. Was she wrong in her interpretation of the tree? No. It had fruit on it. And from what we are told in the creation account, there is nothing uniquely distinct about this tree or about its fruit. The danger is not this fruit is poisonous because of the fruit itself. What we're simply told is that they are allowed to eat from every tree except for just simply one. The test is in that there's one that they can't eat from, not because there is something inherently different about it or something inherently dangerous about it. It is good for food. She's not wrong there. She rightly interprets what God had made. Secondly, notice what it says. It was a delight to the eyes. What did God say himself about what he made at the end of Genesis 1? That it was delightful. That he saw everything that he made. He saw it. God saw what he made and he declared it very good that God himself was delighted 
with the visual presentation of what he had done in addition to everything else that was part of it. So once again, she's not wrong in interpreting the tree as something that's delightful to the eye. She's not wrong there. Thirdly, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. When they ate of the tree, did they become wiser than they were before? Yeah. They learned some things that they didn't know. And they would not have learned at that time without eating of that tree. Now, the wisdom that they got, was it positive? No. But was the tree good for food, delightful to the eye, and desired to make one wise? See, the problem here is not that she has wrongly interpreted the tree. The problem here is she is only looking at the tree and not looking through the tree to God. Rather than interacting with the tree as it is designed to be something through which humanity was to experience God, she is separating God from the experience. She is looking at the value of the tree and only the tree and not as it is a conduit for her to then interact with God. She has separated God from his word by getting some things wrong here. She has, more importantly, for my point this morning, is she has separated God from his world. And this, beloved, has introduced a pattern of existence into this world that every human has experienced who has been born from Adam or from, or from Eve ever since. A pattern in which we don't just look at creation in order to enjoy it and to experience it and through it to enjoy and experience God. We now live in a world that constantly and consistently is seeking to separate God from his world. They want to have God's blessings. They want to have God's creation. They just don't want God to be a part of it. And this pattern is manifesting itself over and over and over again throughout history. A pattern of separating God from his world. And beloved, you and I do this every day. We separate God from our own existence. And we do it in ways that we're not even consciously aware of. This is why what's so interesting to me is when we were, uh, when we were praying the prayer of confession earlier, it struck me. One of the chief ways that we like to separate God from ourselves is we will even separate God from our own sins. 
that even when we become aware of our sins, rather than confess them immediately and run to God and let him love on us and let him pour out his grace on us, we will sin. When we become aware of it, we almost take a step back from God because we start thinking, well, let me deal with this thing. I don't want to come into God all dirty and taint him. We even separate ourselves from God with regards to our sin. This is how deeply ingrained this pattern is. So pattern one, you and I and the world around us, we live in this consistent pattern, especially in ways that we're not even aware of separating God from his world. Therefore, the the result for us is that we tend to interact with God's world in such a way that we only interact with the world. And we don't interact with the world in order to, through the world, interact with God. Which means that hidden presence, that lowercase s sacramental presence of God in his world is something that you and I separate ourselves from and we're not enjoying it. Pattern one, separating God from his world. Pattern two, notice what Adam could have done here, right? Right up to this point, we've only talked about Eve. And the point here is not, well, let's point our fingers at the ladies. All right, now, gentlemen, let's get all the fingers pointed to us. Adam is faced with several options here, right? His wife, his bride, his beloved has just eaten the fruit that she's not supposed to eat. What is he going to do? What could he have done? Have you ever thought about that? Instead of just running through the narrative, have you ever thought about, well, what could he have done? He has not eaten of the fruit yet. Is he a sinner yet? No. And our catechism tells us what? The shorter catechism that Adam and Eve were created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. We are told in our catechism that Adam and Eve were created with a positive bent towards holiness and righteousness. Adam is still in a sinless estate at this point. He could have done lots of things. He could have stepped back from her. Can't have anything to do with you now, (laughs) right? You're on your own. We love that response, don't we? When you're trying to grow and you feel like you're going through one of those periods where you're like, man, I am really got my prayer life together right now, right? And then you go hang out with one of those friends that's struggling and you're like, well, you know what? You're kind of harshing my prayer buzz right now, so I'm going to not spend as much time with you right now. We love that response, don't we? Let's not just, make, let's not just point fingers at Adam. But he could have done that. He could have looked at her, and because of his love, he could have said, wait right there. And then he could have gone to God and said, here's what happened. The bride you gave me, 
the one that I said, whoa, about, right? That's actually the first Hebrew word of Adam's response to, see, to seeing Eve. It is, whoa. He's pretty excited. That's the first love word. He could have said, you know what? The bride you gave me, she made a mistake. She did what you told us not to do. I don't want you to kill her. Let her live and take me instead. Could have done that, right? Did he? Now, we don't know how God would have responded to that. But he could have at least made the gesture. But he didn't. What did Adam decide to do? He jumped right in with both feet. He joined. He participated. But what was his response when God came and spoke to them about what had happened? He turned and pointed a finger. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, notice that the sin that Eve committed, it doesn't stop with her. Adam now joins her by adding his own sins. And at this point, if we were really wanted to be really good legalists, we could sit down and we could try to figure out the equation. Well, who sinned more right now? But the point here is this. The pattern is that sin didn't stop. It starts to spread. It starts to enumerate. It starts to repeat itself it starts to grow, it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so Adam, his first response to sin is for him to join in it so that now sin is, is, has increased. And so he does that, God confronts them, and what does he do? He sins again. It was the woman, where, the, where before it was, whoa, check out this woman, now it's like, it's the woman. Right? Completely different perspective. And so, he, so not only has sin itself started to increase and to grow, but Adam's sin is increasing and it is growing. You keep going. What time, do we, what time do we stop? No, don't say that. Adam's sin is increasing, it is growing, it is getting bigger, but so is Eve's. How does she respond? Did she give Adam the fruit? Yeah. But what does she say? The serpent. Is that true? Was, did the serpent trick her? Yeah. But could she simply point a finger and now everything was okay? Could she avoid personal responsibility? Could Adam avoid personal responsibility? No. Sin itself has increased because now more than one person is doing it. But each of the persons who are alive, and by the way, the only two persons who are alive at this point, they keep increasing their own sin. And the, the pattern that we see is that when we start to separate God from his world, it becomes 
a pattern that gets set on repeat and over and over and over again, we will continue to separate God from his word and from his world. And the more that we do that, the deeper we go into sin, the more often we sin and sin itself, whether we talk about sin in the individual or sin in the world, sin in creation, it is growing, it is getting bigger, and it is increasing. And guess what? The rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, is unfolding for us the increasing of sin over and over and over and over. And so even in Genesis 4, Quickly, who can tell me, what's Genesis 4 about? I know we're Presbyterians, but I'm going to let you speak during the service. Cain and Abel. Sin is increasing within the family. And as you go into 5 and into 6 and into 7, what do you find out? Sin is increasing so much that God now says, I'm going to start over. Sin increasing. Sin increasing within the individual. Sin increasing within the marriage bond. Sin increasing within the family. Sin increasing within civilization. Sin increasing, increasing, increasing. Where we find ourselves living even right now at a time at a place where our culture is striving to separate God from his world, striving to separate God from his word, striving and striving and striving. And what is the result? Sin is increasing. Wars, famine, People going hungry right here in Charleston. One of the wealthiest cities in the southeast. People going hungry. Have you ever noticed the irony of Charleston? That we love Gullah culture and we love to promote it. That we love to talk about the food. We love to talk about the different aspects of the culture. But what's interesting is could someone of the Gullah culture afford to go into one of the downtown restaurants to eat their own cuisine? We have a church down the road that we just remembered went through an incredible tragedy as a Bible study ended not with prayer and with praise and with singing, but with gunfire. Sin is increasing, and it is increasing, and it is increasing. And so what hope do we have? What is the hope of our lives? If inside us sin is increasing, what is the hope of our marriages if within the marriage bond sin is increasing? What is the hope of our families if within families sin is increasing? What is the hope 
of our civilization if within civilization sin is increasing. The hope is that where sin increased, grace is abounding. If you want to understand Romans chapter 5, this is it. Where the sin of one man has led to the destruction and death of everyone who has been born of him by natural generation. The righteousness of one man is now saving many from death and bringing them into new life. And giving them the hope that where man has been striving to separate God from his word and from his world. God is putting it back together by causing the second person of the Trinity to take up flesh and become the living word. And in becoming the living word, he is pulling back together God and his world. But he has done that. Notice, in the gospel first preached right here in Genesis 3, because the hope that is for us as the people of God, the hope for this world that is lost and is dying, the hope is found within the context of a curse. Genesis 3.15, that all of us know, is called the first preaching of the gospel. Have you ever noticed what the actual words are? They're a curse. Genesis 3.15 is God cursing the serpent. And yet in the midst of a curse, Hope is found because the hope that God gives us in the word made flesh is a hope that could only come to fruition as that word would take the place of his sinful bride and receive the curse that she deserved. And the hope that we have, beloved, as Christians is a hope that resides in God taking the material and the immaterial realities of existence and He's holding them together for us. He is holding it together and He is remaking all of it for us through His Son and His Son in looking upon us in our sin. His Son looking upon us in the hopelessness of the increasing of sin in our lives. That Son has looked on us with mercy and he has looked on us with love and he has said father i will stand in her place and that is our hope that is the hope for you as an individual it is the only hope for your marriage it is the hope of your family it is the hope of this world that where sin increased grace is abounding The imagery there in Romans 5 is a picture as if sin is, is this moving stream of water. And it's a moving stream of water that's picking up pace. And yet out of nowhere what happens 
is not something that goes against it, but something that just overwhelms it from the top, whereas there is a greater deluge that just comes over the top and is wiping it out because sin, yes, it's moving and it's growing and it's increasing, but grace is superabounding. And it's overwhelming sin. And so, beloved, as you wrestle with your sin, as you wrestle with your sin in marriages, families, your workplaces, your neighbors, in this watching world, let us be a people of the hope of the superabounding grace of God. Because where sin has increased, grace is abounding. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, words just seem trite in a moment like this. How do we say thank you? How do we give any kind of real substantive expression of response? What we ask of you, Lord, is to so convince us of the superabounding nature of your grace that in the power of that grace we would develop new patterns, new habits, overcoming the patterns we have inherited from our first parents over the coming the patterns of our culture and the world in which we live and developing patterns of grace, sowing them deep within our hearts, our minds, and our wills so that in the totality of our being in existence as those made in your image and remade in the new image of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we would be so, that we would drink so deeply and eat so richly of your grace that we would be the very bouquet of life, the life of Jesus Christ and the grace of a triune God who has loved us and who has made us new. Lord, send us, we pray, overwhelmed in this grace, this marvelous grace of our loving Lord that truly exceeds the increasing of our sin and makes us new. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.